There was no war horse, no regiment of soldiers, no Braveheart face paint, or remember the Alamo speech. There was a king, and he was riding on a donkey. Why did the king ride into the city? The following quote is from someone who made an indelible mark on history, and I want you to listen closely to this person's perception of Jesus. So try to figure out here who said this. Here's the quote. My feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. Do you know who said that? Would it surprise you if I said it was Adolf Hitler? In Munich on April 12, 1922, during his rise to power, Hitler claimed to be a Christian. Hitler said that Jesus was greatest not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. Isaiah described the king as afflicted. He said he was crushed for our iniquities. It was with his wounds that he heals. Isaiah described the king as oppressed, afflicted, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The king was stricken for the transgression of the people. Isaiah said that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And at the end of Isaiah 53, Isaiah captures... Why the king rode into the city. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our great king is a suffering servant. Yes, Jesus is a fighter. He fought the greatest enemy, not the Jews, but sin and death and sacrifice his life to conquer sin and death. The greatness of his conquest was in his death. One day, Jesus Christ will return as the sovereign and fierce and fighting king, but many years ago, that same king rode into the city to suffer and pour out his soul to death. Why did the king ride into the city? To celebrate Passover. It was most likely Sunday before Passover. Thousands and thousands of people had streamed into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The large crowd in verse 12 was those who had come to Jerusalem for Passover. Not to be confused with the large crowd from verse 9 who had gone to Bethany to see Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. So naturally he came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Well... It would not be far-fetched to say that tens of thousands of people heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Many were already conversing about whether Jesus 
was going to come to the feast or not. Jesus was a celebrity of sorts. Thousands encountered his miracles and teaching. In fact, Jesus had performed signs at the Passover feast before, at another Passover. The resurrection of Lazarus was hot news. Hostility was brewing in Jerusalem. An appearance of Jesus at the feast would be absolutely momentous. Another reason the king rode into the city was to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. Let's skip verse 13 for a moment. We'll come back to it. And head into verses 14 through 16 for a little backstory. The prophet Zechariah is quoted in verse 15. Why? Back in 1586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The Jews were exiled to Babylonia. Zechariah was born into a prominent Jewish priestly family while in exile. After Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians, he liberated the captives and sent Jews back to their homeland in 538 BC. Zechariah was among them. In 536 BC, temple reconstruction began. Opposition and internal indifference arose and halted the reconstruction project. The Jews were disheartened at that, so God raised up another prophet, Zechariah the priest, to rally and embolden God's people. He reassured them that God would be faithful to bless them if they were faithful. Zechariah promised about a coming Messiah, about a king, and this is what Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. A righteous king would come. On a donkey. He would bring salvation. He would speak peace to the nations. He would rule everywhere. 500 years later, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, and rode into Jerusalem. Then in verse 14, says, it says something very powerful. Just as it is written, Zechariah wrote it. Jesus fulfilled it. Verse 15 isn't an exact quote. Some say, fear not, in John, uh, is just another way of saying rejoice greatly from Zechariah. And some say, fear not, is actually from Isaiah 40, verse 9, a similar passage. Whatever the reason, the point is the same. Jesus is the king of Zechariah 9. But his salvation and liberation and restoration were different than expected. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Three, three simple things to note. Number one, 
In the moment, though they saw Jesus as king, they missed the deeper significance of what was going on, of the, of the event. Number two, they only got it. It only really sunk in after Jesus was glorified, which I take to mean after his crucifixion and resurrection, possibly including the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 2, verse 22, and John 14, verse 26 strongly suggest that point. Number three, notice what they remembered in verse 16. Two things. Number one, the things that had been written about him And number two, what had been done to him. They eventually linked the life and the events of Jesus Christ with the messianic prophecies that were written way before Jesus Christ was incarnated, before the Son of God was incarnated. They had seen the prophecies fulfilled. They watched these prophecies be fulfilled, and the Holy Spirit later helped them to remember, oh yeah, that's what was written about way back then. You see, John 12 shows God's sovereign will coming to pass. Now, if you've ever doubted whether God's promises will come true, whether God will honor his promises, just study John 12. Study John 12. God always honors his promises. He sent the humble and sovereign king on a donkey to save people and to bring peace for the nations. God always honors his promises. Kings and rulers in the Old Testament rode on donkeys. When Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, he was making a definitive statement about himself. He was identifying himself as the sovereign messianic king. He was saying, I am the long-awaited, the long-anticipated Messiah king. Look to me and see the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And it was exciting for the people too because in the first century, the dim greatness of Israel was eclipsed by the dominant glory of Rome. So maybe this king would restore political and economic supremacy for Israel. This might be the day. You see, they wanted a revolutionary But what did they need? Another political or economic revolution? No. They needed someone to save them from their sin and guilt. They needed someone to satisfy the justice and wrath of God on their behalf. They hailed Jesus as king, but they failed to see their great spiritual need and why the king rode into the city. Uh, the triumphal entry was a little bit like the Oscars. All right? I bet you're wondering where I'm going with this. It's fit for a king, but it often celebrates the wrong thing. Behind the applause of the celebrities and millions of viewers is often a celebration of secularism and sexual immorality. Nothing wrong with award shows, nothing wrong with film, nothing wrong with good acting. I like to see good acting. But the fanfare and applause of the Oscars so often celebrate ideals antithetical to the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. In the screams of the crowd at the triumphal entry were ideals, were motives antithetical to Christ's true purpose for entry. It was fit for a king, but it celebrated the wrong thing. 
They were not penitent praises of spiritual deliverance, but presumptuous praises of earthly deliverance. Why did the king ride into the city? To make a big entrance. To make a big entrance. It was time for Jesus to stir things up. Not as a militaristic revolutionary, but as a suffering servant. William Hendrickson, he got it right. He wrote this, quote, He deliberately plans a demonstration, fully realizing that, as a result, the enthusiasm of the masses will enrage the hostile leaders at Jerusalem to such a degree that they will desire more intensely than ever to carry out their plot against him, end of quote. The triumphal entry is one of the few accounts that uh, all four Gospels record. So in order to, to understand this at a deeper level, you really have to spend some time in Matthew 21, in Mark 11, and in Luke 19 for more detail. Back to verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What a moment. Oh, what a moment. Probably thousands of screaming fans. Can you hear it? Hosanna! Hosanna! Thousands of people screaming. The immense crowd from the city grabbed palm branches of palm trees, likely from date palm trees, which were in abundance in Jerusalem. I never actually knew that dates grew on palm trees. I think that's actually kind of cool. Uh, I like uh, dates every now and again. Palm branches were a national symbol of Israel. Waving palm branches signified victory over one's enemies. The Jews most likely interpreted his entry as revolution against Rome to reinstate the glory and power of Israel under his sovereign rule as king. As Jesus approached the city, The enthused horde went out to greet him. They screamed for him, Hosanna! Hosanna, which is is transliterated from Aramaic, meaning save, I pray. Save, I pray. But it had come really to mean more of a praise or an adoration. They shouted Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they added, even the king of Israel. They saw a leader. They saw opportunity. They saw a king. And they praised him. And the pomp and the circumstance, it may all seem really genuine, but it's sad. It's sad. Reminiscent of John 6. Jesus miraculously fed thousands and the crowd said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they were right. And it seems all well and good. And they wanted to actually force him to make him king at that moment. All because of what? All because they saw him do a miracle. A miracle. John 12 is similar. The big crowd that saw Jesus raise Lazarus was testifying. The news got around. And verse 18 says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now think about it. Think about it. A king who can raise the dead? My, what Israel could become. 
What military conquest with the king that can raise dead soldiers? Who could possibly stop this king? My what Israel could become led by a wise and eloquent king who raises the dead and heals the sick and creates an endless food supply. The massive crowd went to meet Jesus because they heard what he could do. They went with expectancy, assumptions, and patriotism, not humility, repentance, and faith. You know, my mind goes to America. Isn't American Christianity similar to this? Many expect Jesus to give them whatever they want now. They presume many equate Christian with American and associate Christ with patriotism. Just ask the Republican Party. Ask country music. Ask the Deep South or the Bible Belt. But what happens when Jesus doesn't give people what they want? They yell, crucify him. In days, their hosannas would sour into enraged shouts of murder. Why the sudden change? Dashed hopes and dreams. Disappointment. He wasn't what we thought he was. A king on a cross? He must not be a king. Their political and economic expectancy, assumptions, and patriotism were completely shattered with the king on the cross. Couldn't they see that what they really needed was someone to save them from their sin and guilt and the impending judgment of God? This grand procession, it escalated the hatred of the Pharisees. You can see it in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. And they're saying this to one another. We're not gaining anything. Look, the world has gone after him. They were completely exasperated. Hosanna's intensified their hatred of Jesus. You can hear it in their voices. You see that you are gaining nothing. We're not moving ahead, men. This man continues to gain steam. All their effort had little effect, and they knew it. They said, the world has gone after him. Probably hyperbole. You know how that gets sometimes. Well, everybody hates me. Well, not everybody hates you, just, just a handful of people, no. Um, at this moment, it's probably hyperbole. The world has gone after him. But it's interesting to note that uh, the word world, in verse 20, right after that, Jesus mentions Greeks. And that's not coincidence. The Passover brought Jews from long distances into Jerusalem, but also God-fearing Greeks, Right after the Pharisees said the world has gone after him, John adds that the Greeks desired to see Jesus. The king rode into the city for the nations. Well, the triumphal entry was big, really big. And I believe that many people, think about this, many people get really excited about Jesus for the wrong reasons. Jesus is the means to some other ends that they really want. Jesus is just the way to get me to what I really want, but Jesus isn't what I really want. Have you ever had really high expectations and excitement about someone, a person, politician, whatever it may be, 
And then they let you down. And your expectation and excitement turns into anger and disgust over that person. Heroes can be made into villains when expectations aren't met. But the king didn't ride into the city to meet the immediate expectations of the people. He rode into the city to receive glory through a cross. The king rode into the city to be glorified through death. Among the worshipers flooding into Jerusalem were Greeks who heard about Jesus and they wanted to meet with him and they approached Philip and they asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus well, why ask Philip? Well, we don't know exactly why they would ask Philip, but he was one of the 12. Perhaps the Greeks wondered if Jesus would even meet with them. And so he asked one of his 12 to make sure. And this was kind of a, a sticky moment for Philip. He didn't take them right to Jesus. He went and consulted Andrew first. And then both Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus It may have been sticky because of what Jesus said previously about Gentiles. So I wonder if they heard what he said and they were kind of confused and they're like, we we need some counsel on this one. Because this is what Jesus had said before when he sent out the 12 in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. He told them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, so there's something there about we're not supposed to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And then later, Jesus said he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But on the other hand, in John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what would Jesus say about these Greeks? What, what, what do we do? And I think that might have been a little tricky for them, and so they wanted to consult with Jesus. Philip didn't know what to do. He was probably insecure about moving ahead. So Andrew, and then they go to Jesus. Now, this section was puzzling to me. Verse 23 says that Jesus answered them, and it was Andrew and Philip that came to him about the Greeks. But down in verse 29, you'll notice that the crowd is there as well. And in verse 34, the crowd actually answered Jesus. So what Jesus said in verses 23 through 26 seemed to go to Andrew and Philip and the crowd. This is how Jesus answered. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The king rode into the city to be glorified. How? Listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, he was adding emphasis, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wait a second. Why use death to illustrate glorification? Why death? To illustrate glorification, wheat is not the quintessence of sovereign power. Well, Jesus said before that an hour is coming. An hour is coming. Several times they wanted to arrest Jesus, but couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. Now, Jesus told them, the hour has come. The time is now. For him to be glorified. And his glory would be like a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. 
And if it doesn't enter the ground and die, it remains alone and no harvest is produced. But if it dies, if it falls into the ground, it eventually grows and grows and grows and it produces this fantastic and abundant harvest. The harvest comes through death. Now, if you want to answer the question, why did the king ride into the city? If you want to understand the glorification of Jesus Christ, you must look to his death and see in it what he produces from it. Like no other king of history, Jesus is glorified in his death. And through his death, his sovereign reign is established. His death gives life. His death gives life. The king rode into the city to die and to bring many sons to glory. To bring many sons to glory. What did Jesus mean when he said, but if it dies, it bears much fruit? Well, Jesus compared himself to that little grain of wheat. If he died, he would bear a harvest of people through his death. His death would produce fruit or people saved through his substitutionary atonement. Without his death, no one gets saved. Without his death, Jesus alone enters into eternal life. Everyone else perishes. But through his vicarious death, he leads many to eternal life with him. Isn't that cool imagery? That Jesus is escorting all of these people who trust in him and follow him into eternal life. And it is only through his vicarious death that he does so. Jesus continued, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Remember, Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And then Jesus said, whoever loves, whoever loves, and whoever hates, and if anyone serves, his words are for the nations. If anyone loves their life more than they love God, let me repeat that. If anyone loves their own life more than they love God, they will perish. They will lose their life forever because the purpose of life is knowing and loving and serving God. That's why you exist. But if anyone hates his own life, as in he loves God more than his own life and all of the pleasures contained in it, then he will live forever because intimacy with God is eternal life. Now the word hate in verse 25 is used as an intensifier to show how much more we should love God than what we love our, our own life. In other words, our love for God should eclipse our love for everything else. Everything else. It should look like hatred compared to our love for everything else. That's how you live forever. You love God more than this life. This is not all that there is. There is something huge beyond this life. And it's the eternal reality of God. Experiencing God forever. That's beyond this life. Now let's expand on this. Look at verse 26. Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Now if, 
Now, if anyone is going to be a genuine and legitimate Christian, they're, they're actually saved, they're actually a genuine servant of the king, then that person must follow him. Well, follow him where? Follow him where? First, to the cross. If you're going to really serve Jesus, you must follow him to the cross and die. If you want eternal life, like Paul, you must be crucified with Christ. Your sinful nature and desires must die with Christ on his cross, and through him you must be raised to new life to live and serve him. Doesn't Romans 6 2 through 11, capture this. This is what Paul wrote. I just think it's a a great exposition in a sense, an explanation of what Jesus was saying here. This is what Paul wrote. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now listen closely to verse 6. We know that our old self, our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God. This is not physical dying. This is not physically taking your own life. This is your sin is murdered in the cross with Jesus and you live because he raised to new life, he raised you to new life and you walk in newness of life. Dead to sin and alive to God. When Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. He meant to follow him to his cross and die to sin. Your sinful life and all your Sinful pleasures must be crucified on the cross. Then, and only then, will you follow him into eternal life to be where he is forever. You've got to go through the cross. Now, if you're going to serve Jesus now and forever, then you need to die to sin and live with him now. Did you catch the reward in here for those who serve Christ? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Isn't that awesome? 
If we die to Christ and if we live with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. God will honor us. Paul said in Romans 8, 17 that we are children of God, heirs. And if we suffer with him, if we come to the cross and die, if we we endure suffering for the cause of Christ, we will be glorified with him. That's a promise to you. Dear Christian, you will be glorified with Christ. William Hendrickson summarized Christ's meaning in verses 25 and 26 like this. I think it's so powerful. He who, when the issue is between me and my gospel on the one hand and whatever has been dearest to him on the other hand, chooses the latter, will perish everlastingly. I will at my coming be ashamed of him. But he who is in this world, that is in the midst of the present adulterous and wicked generation, is willing to sacrifice his life for me and my gospel will guard and preserve it so that it will blossom forth into everlasting life in the mansions above. If anyone serves me, let him follow me all the way, even though it be the way of self-denial and the cross bearing in mind that the way of the cross leads to the crown. He will share with me the glory of heaven, abiding forever in my presence. Besides, also the Father who loves me will honor him, for he honors those who honor me. End of quote. The king rode into the city to die and to bring many sons to glory, to bear great fruit, and everyone who by faith goes to the cross with him to die, to have their sin crucified with Christ, will be saved to live for Christ in all things and will be glorified in that day from the cross to the crown. Now let me ask you one powerful question. Consider it carefully. Will you follow the king to the cross? Will you follow the king to the cross? And I didn't ask if you would follow more rules. I didn't ask if you would just be a better person and do more stuff. I asked if you would follow Jesus all the way to his cross to die to your sin and to live to Christ, to live for God. You see, your old self must be killed. Your old self must be buried for your new self to live in holiness. Will you follow the king to the cross? Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oh, the joy of following Jesus to the cross and crown. The essence of the Christian life is dying daily to sin and living daily with Christ. We do this by faith. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Have you followed the King to the cross? And has your old sinful self been crucified with Him? Put to death? Is Christ now living in you? Are you living by faith in the Son of God? If not, 
You need to get yourself to the cross. Immediately. And if you've already been to the cross, serve him. Serve him. Continue to put sin to death. What John Owen calls the mortification of sin, the mortification of the flesh. We put it to death in your life now and we continue and press on in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep doing that and to walk in righteousness and holiness following our King wherever He chooses to lead us. That's the good life. I want you to have that good life. I want that good life. And so, for those of you who have been to the cross, I I just want to ask you, will you rejoice in the cross? Is this a happy day? We can rejoice in the cross because we are united to the King through faith. And so, as a practical application, because a lot of people are like, man, give me like six things to do, all right? Here is a helpful application, because I think if you get the truth, there are a zillion applications, And the Holy Spirit will lead you in those applications. I don't necessarily need to tell you what to do. Just believe the truth and respond to it. But here's a way that you can practically respond to it. Let's say we're singing songs, okay? Wilma's leading us. And she's playing along and we're taking in melodies and harmonies and we're taking in the words of the songs and we're rejoicing at what Jesus has done. In our heart, we're actually celebrating, having a little party together with our brothers and sisters, all of us contributing, that, that we are united with our king and that he rode into the city to redeem us. So let's be happy. Let's be joyful. Let's, let's respond in exuberant worship. And then, and then when you go to work, and you're, ha- you're just getting beat down, and then you, you, something happens, you lose a sale, or your boss reams you out, and you're just down, and you're like, this day, could it just be over? And then you think, my king rode in to the city to get me. I wonder if that would do something for your outlook on life. Like, I think it should. Um, rejoice, be joyful, sing, praise Him, draw closer to Him through the Scriptures, give more to the church because your brothers and sisters need you and you can contribute because Jesus contributed so much and it's not like we can pay Him back because we can't. We're just doing it because we love Him. We just, we just, I just love that Jesus rode in on a donkey and fulfilled Zechariah 9, and I'm absolutely stunned by that. And so in response to that, I'm just going to worship him. I'm just going to serve like crazy. I'm just going to love people exactly where they are. Folks, I am so much trying to make connections with biblical truth to my life because it gets lost somewhere in there. You ever, you ever feel that? You're like, I just read this, but why am I not doing it? Why am I not rejoicing? Why am I fretting, looking at politics and the world? I said, it's just going to hell. Look what's happening. There's so much to despair about. You know what that is? That's forgetting that the king rode in to conquer through his death and that I'm redeemed. I'm his. I have a heavenly inheritance waiting for me. And so do you if you trust that the king rode into the city for you, if you followed him to the cross. 
So I, I just think there's like tons of ways to apply this. You just have to work it out and you have to believe it. The king rode into the city and died so you didn't have to. You should have been on that cross. But he was. The king was. Our king is sovereign and magnificent and beautiful because he rode into the city to suffer and die for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so good. Man, this is, this is really worth celebrating. This is really worth worshiping you over God because you sent this wonderful king. His name was Jesus and he was your only son. And you raised him up to go to the cross. Oh, this is, this is good news. This is why it's called gospel. Thank you that you sent your son to ride into that vitriolic city where they hated him and these hosannas just quickly morphed into crucify him my what hatred and I pray God that we would look to that humble king riding on a donkey look and follow him the whole way to the cross where we see our old self crucify with him And then in his resurrection, we are resurrected unto new life that we can walk in the newness of life. Thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit who leads us to walk in the newness of life. God, would you help us to be excited about that? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the praise team's gonna come up. We're gonna sing.